Got a quick question for you. Have you ever read Wired Magazine? Well, if you weren't aware, or you're not a reader, it's a very popular magazine that's distributed monthly, I believe. And it focuses on how emerging technologies affect our culture, the economy, and politics. Why am I bringing this up? Well, the founding executive editor is writer, photographer, conservationist, and student of Asia and digital cultures, Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly has been one of the masterminds behind Wired's incredible content and has kept readers in tune with our relationship with technology. Kevin's also written a number of amazing books that have helped me remain an optimist towards our technology acceleration. These titles include What Technology Wants, New Rules for the New Economy, and his latest book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Kevin is also notoriously known for being incredibly accurate with all of his technology predictions. And aside from all these accomplishments, I wanted to speak with Kevin because of his interesting journey leading up to all of his success. In short, Kevin dropped out of college decades ago to travel Asia and document their vibrant culture through photography. He embraced being lost, staying curious, and learning how to flow with the new culture, which is essentially about unlearning and learning. And on one of my favorite YouTube shows called Impact Theory, Kevin said something that really spoke to me. So what can people that are in the thick of the job market now that are going to get slapped around by robotics and AI, like how should they be thinking? So, so, um, you know, a very common question, really related that a lot of parents ask me is, oh, yeah, I hear all this stuff is coming, AI and VR, what should my kid be studying in school? And I think really there's no language that's going to survive very long. There's very few even skills that aren't going to be obsolete by the time you graduate. So most of the jobs that you will have, I'm talking to somebody maybe who's in the high school right now, are probably jobs that don't exist right now. And so then this idea of, well, the only really skill you want to learn in, say, school is the meta skill of how to learn. And what's really interesting to me is that um, that's almost taught nowhere. And um, it turns out that um, almost nobody, including me, really knows how we learn ourselves. So it's not just how to learn how to learn, but how you learn best how to learn. That's a high bar. And to do that is not going to be something you're just trying around. You need to be, you need to have teachers. You need to be tested. You need to be scored. You need to practice. There are lots of different ways to learn. So each variety you have to test yourself and become better in that. And so, so to actually learn how to learn would require, a, would require years of discipline improvement. And we don't have that. So that means that neither I nor you really have, have learned how to optimize our own learning. But that should be the general common thing that you're going to be taught in school. And that when you graduate, you have a meta skill of knowing how you learn and whatever kind of problem comes up, you at least know your best method for learning that. I'm fortunate that Kevin made time to discuss this with me on time off. And on this episode, Kevin and I discuss how artificial intelligence is going to help us, 
what the most important skills of the future are for us to develop, and the meaning behind a mysterious 10,000-year clock that is in the middle of West Texas. Yes, that's a real thing. To say it was a pleasure is an understatement, and I hope you enjoy this conversation between Kevin Kelly and I. I'm honored to speak with you, Kevin. I've heard a lot about you from one of my business partners, Bettina Warburg. I've been, oh, yeah. Yeah, working with her at Animal Ventures for a while. And when I told her early on on this topic of time off and rest that I've been fascinated by, she she said that I should speak to you as one of the dozen or so people that she was wanting to hear their perspective on rest and time off. So thank you for making the time to, uh, to do this. Quick question that I thought of while I was on a walk today. I wanted to ask you, Kevin, what has been the most restful moment you've had recently? Oh my gosh. Um, restful moment recently. Hmm. Well, I am one of the world's best sleepers. Um, I'm, I have a switch. I, I lay down, turn the switch, and then I'm out. And then in the morning, I turn the switch on, and I'm up. And I also uh, take, take power naps. And I turn the switch off, and in 21 minutes, I wake up, and I'm on. And um, when I'm out, I'm out. I get really good rests every night. Wow. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I just, I, I, I'm unconscious. It's like I'm just gone, and then I'm back. And then... So, so every night I get some of the world's best rest. Are there, is this a muscle that you've trained over time? I have no idea. And, and also I'm not affected by, by jet lag either. It's the same thing. I just, it's just turn the switch and it does it. So in that kind of rest, like sleep rest, I don't know. I just have uh, blessed and born with this sort of this weird thing with, um, you know, kind of maybe a rest in a broader sense of uh, kind of stopping. I'm trying to remember, um, you know, I, I have, there's, I think there was like a Sunday afternoon before my last trip or something where actually like I decided not to do anything productive. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember what I did, but it wasn't very productive. <laughs> and so uh, um, I, that was a rest. Um, you know, I, I think for a very long time, we, we really try to treat Sundays in a kind of s- Sabbath way, meaning not that we didn't do work, try not to do the required work, but we at least try to treat it as a different kind of day than the rest of the week and to, to, to break the routine. So um, I wouldn't do overt kind of work work on uh, until Sunday, well, from Saturday evening to Sunday evening, but we at least uh, try and, you know, do different things and to try and break the, the, um, the continuity of the rest of the week and interrupt it with, rest or playfulness or or different kinds of work that's wonderful sundays has always been a bit sacred to my background and i was raised on a farm in texas and sunday was literally centered around one meal 
uh, which was dinner uh, that both sides of the family helped uh, produce and put together. So Sunday, it's a nice, nice little reset before the rest of the week. Yeah, it is. And as I was just, you know, one of the things I've said about Sabbaths is, is in general in Sabbath, you know, like taking a Sabbath or, or sabbatical is that um, we take a break from the things, not because they're bad, but because they're good. So, so like, I think trying to take a break off of the screen, a Sabbath from the screen, it's not because the screens are bad, but because they're so good. And the same thing about work, work is good, but we take a, a break from it, not because it's bad, but because it's good. Speaking of sabbaticals, Kevin, from 1971 until about 1980, you did a ton of exploring. You dropped out of university, took incredible photos around the world, and then also rode a bicycle around 5,000 miles across the continental U.S. Looking back, what value was in that time off for you? Yeah, because um, it wasn't time off. I mean, I wasn't thinking of it as time off. That was my main thing. That was what I was. That was my work, in a curious way. Um, I would actually occasionally take some days off from my, from from what I was doing, which was I was photographing um, every day, um, except for the bike ride when I was journaling and taking. I was uh, sketching, and I would do that every day. And so um, it was sort of the opposite of taking time off. I was very intense about and deliberate about what I'm doing, which was maximizing the amount of learning, maximizing the amount of um, kinds of photographs I was trying to get every day and only occasionally taking some, some time off. I probably didn't take enough time off at that time. And so, you know, people would say, well, we'll look back and says, well, you didn't have a real job and therefore you're off. But, you know, I, I, I think the, um, the thing that I kind of very early on had in my head for some reason that I don't really know why, but I got this idea very long of kind of redefining success, what success was and what I was aiming for. And when I was trying to maximize and, and, and they, they, you know, they weren't, it wasn't to, to have a million dollars when I was 30. And, and cause I had, I kept meeting people when I was traveling who had a lot of money, but no time. And it just seemed to me that I was much wealthier than they were. And because I could spend an extra couple of days hanging around the Taj Mahal, whatever that wanted to do. And they couldn't, and, and, and they were, frustrated and unhappy that they had to move on. They were obliged. They didn't have a choice. And um, I just really felt that I was wealthier than they were, even though I, I mean, I had no money at all. That's a very good point. And thank you for seeing it as, I mean, as it was a very productive time and very intense amount of work that you did during that time. I guess when I was thinking about, time off, maybe a better word is just like stopping what you were doing, this path you were on and sort of taking this sudden, sudden turn, this, this new path, which I find. Well, yeah. I mean, I, but the thing was, I was never, I mean, I was never really on the path from, from, sure. Um, from, you know, kind of like the hippie, uh, the, 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 maybe the hippie path of n not working for the man, not trying to go down that and, and and you know it, in certain in certain sense like, i had a hourly job at the whole earth catalog which was a non-profit i worked for ten dollars an hour 
but my first real job in some speak was 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 at wired when i was you know i was oh gee almost 40 or something uh that was kind of like my first real job it was a job that i we invented that, that i gave myself <laughs> that's um, awesome and i really tried all along to try to invent things to do when i had literally no money i i had enough money to survive and i actually had probably more money even though i had you know relatively nothing you know i had uh, $1000 or something i think i spent $2000 a year um traveling i was a rich man compared to a lot of the locals and part of that kind of the lesson for me was this kind of the relative and kind of weirdly absurd um uh value of of money that it's um um yeah people were struggling to to get enough to eat i because of the the luck of where i was born through no fault of my own you know would have a currency that was much more valuable than theirs through no no effort of my own and then there's you know and there's people tons richer than me who again were lucky in their circumstances and so it's sort of like it's all a matter of luck in some ways and and, and even my success at wired was always luck we, we happened to we worked hard but a lot of people work hard and don't have the same results and we we happened to come at the right time at the right place and so we were lucky and um that luck i think evens out some of the um, I don't know what you want some of the for me some of the desire for it because it's like you know um yeah you need enough to 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 survive but it, what the what my travels in Asia taught me was you don't need that much and in America you it's very hard not to have enough food to eat and a place to stay you can do that pretty easily and therefore you should be willing to take a chance and try something because the downside is so minimal that you know you quit your job and you try something what's the worst that could happen well the worst is yeah you might have to eat oatmeal for 9 months or something and um living in a sleeping bag and by the way that's what i was doing that's what i preferred to do when i was traveling i i had a sleeping bag and i was eating oatmeal for breakfast and Okay. Not only was it not bad, it was actually pretty good. And so um I think what I had a taste of pretty quickly was the the idea that you could have a lot more interesting, a lot more fun and a lot more upside actually by taking chances and not following the the usual route and that the downside for all that if it didn't work out was actually not so bad not yeah. bad at all yeah not not bad at all it's i i did a about 4500 mile bike ride right when i graduated college cuz i it didn't feel right to the job offer i had to go work for a century just didn't feel right to me so rather i joined a fundraising group to bike from texas to alaska and uh that was a lot of labor don't get me wrong there's a lot of pedaling as you as you know but the, the moment on the bikes and the in the individuals you meet each day from town to town people were so 
giving. And like you said, we're, we're lucky to be in, and in the, in this nation that, that, that's, that sort of communal element is there. And I just remember spending next to no money, having more food than I've ever, I've ever had in my stomach. And after that, it was like, you know, seeing the iPhone come out at the same time. And I was just like, I don't know if I am doing the right thing or if I have the necessary skills and knowledge, but what I do know is the, the other side of the fear that I once had was actually the worst thing that can happen is I can get on a bicycle and ride around the U S yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 The worst that could happen is you could go back to India and um, live on $2 a day and um, uh, it wouldn't be so bad. So, yeah. so, so I, and, and that's one of the reasons why I really encourage the young to, to travel the, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. And in fact, I, I feel so strongly about it. I really think governments should subsidize the youth travel uh, in some place far away that's very different. And um, one of the many things that you learn that way is, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And you actually live kind of like the worst and you come away realizing, oh, it ain't so bad. So that gives you great confidence to try and try something riskier. It's a great lesson a foundational lesson in learning how little you could actually live and be somewhat content. I mean, I may not want to live your entire life like that, but you know, for a period of time, you, it's actually a strength. It's actually um, something, again, we're talking about like vacations. It's actually, you know, it's, it's a, I'm not sure it's alternative mode. Um, that is useful and knowing that you can survive in that mode and, and that mode can give you the confidence to try something hairy, audacious, and ridiculous. So you've mentioned a few times that, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic, that the, one of the most difficult things about learning something new is actually unlearning the old. And I want to talk a little bit about unlearning and how we can exercise and strengthen that unlearning habit. I know travel is obviously one of them, right? When you go to India and it's entirely different from, you know, rural Texas, you have to unlearn a lot to just you know make it by there to be, be safe. Let's say um, in addition to travel, your thoughts about strengthening that unlearning skill yeah, it's it's um, you know, like I'm like learning a language is a lot about that um, because you have certain habits your mind runs in, and I think that's a lot of learning. It's I mean, some of it's muscle learning, and so you have to overcome um, you know, previous tendencies, previous muscle memories, and um. So you, you're in fact kind of unlearning it, putting yourself what the the Zen people call you know beginner's mind, where 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 you are um, permitting yourself to you're, you're humbling yourself really, allowing yourself to make mistakes and fumble and to not be embarrassed by not knowing or making mistakes, etc. So part of the unlearning is being comfortable with being stupid, you know, being comfortable with being ignorant, being comfortable with um, being clumsy and, and starting. And so, so you, you, you are back at that beginner's mind 
where you are um, going to be at cross purposes and you're going to you're going to fumble. And I think unlearning also entails um, kind of not what's the word I want um, n not feeling comfortable, n not not uh, you know being being uncomfortable, being unconfident, being um, momentarily anyway not at your best and it's not easy to do it's we, we have a natural revulsion against that state we particularly the older we get the harder it is to be in that beginner's state because it's we've worked our entire lives not to be there and i also think that there's a huge parallel in that mode with companies companies and are like humans like when something new comes along you have to sort of uh unlearn everything that the company is about so the company like a person is striven all their lives to be excellent to to do good work to um, pursue this sort of excellence which is not what you need when you're learning something new you you can't be perfecting things you have to kind of retreat back down to the beginning where you are dealing with things that don't work very well, that are unproven, that uh, um, don't make very much sense. And um, the better and more successful a company is, the harder it is to, to devolve in that way and get back to the beginner mind. And I would say the same thing about people. The more successful you are, the harder it is to do that, the harder it is to forget your success and un, kind of unlearn your success and, and get back to that kind of those that mode where you, you don't know what you're doing, and um, it's hard. It's it's hard to to do that because we not only have a natural uh, allergic allergy to it, but 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 if we're successful it's we don't have those muscles anymore and so i am trying myself to keep learning new things to you know get back into that mode where i don't know anything and it's not working and uh i'm clumsy and you know it doesn't work but that's really the only way to start i mean you're you're someone who has studied technology predicted it accurately in many cases are there are there some exercises you do personally to tap back into that beginner's mind, child's mind, that that's a, that's, yeah. that's repeatable for others? Right. That's a great question. Um, well, first of all, I, I'm all, I do try new technologies as I can, and I'm but I'm very loose with them. I'm I'm, I'm very um, what's the word I want. I am not hesitant about letting things go. While I would try everything, I don't actually stick with a lot. And that's partly to kind of allow myself to keep trying new things. It's sort of like the old, uh, I used to like, when I started a movie, I had to finish a movie. It's like, nah, I'm way past that now. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, the same thing with books. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll give it a try, but I am not in any kind of, I don't feel any commitment to to finish things um to stick with them because there's just so many 
choices that we have to, you know, uh, uh, I, I want to kind of follow through on the ones that are most promising. So with technology, I, I find that I do best with technology in talking about a future when I have some personal experience with it. And so um, I do try to seek out and I struggle with all, you know, I mean, that's like anybody else. You get a, a new system, a new thing, you know, getting WeChat loaded on my phone was this, you know, complicated thing. I had to have, you know, there's, there's always this endless um, little travails of adopting new, uh, uh, new technologies. And uh, it's kind of frustrating, but part of that payoff is if I can get them working, I can try them and I can, I can feel what they are and I have some sense of how they operate in the real, real world. And I think that's really very, very important when technology, because there's a, I mean, I'm always astounded by the number of people who are criticizing technologies that they have never used. <laughs> I know. Sense. I mean, it's like one of the reasons I started the Cyberthon event back in 1989, which was the first public access to VR was because I was really frustrated by all these people who were criticizing in some senses virtual reality who had never for a second even tried it and so the idea with cyberthon was that we were going to have a all we rounded up all the existing vr equipment demos at that time and we opened them up for the public for 24 hours it was like here come try it out and then talk about it spend as much time with it because i think that's the only way to evaluate technology i think we have this fallacy of thinkism where we're, we think about them and we thinking we think that thinking about them and what they could do, what they can't do, what they could possibly do, harmful, and imagine that that, that is somehow other valid when in fact it really takes us years of engagement with technology on a large scale for us collectively to determine what it's good for or not good for. We can't evaluate these things simply by thinking about them. And it's gonna take not just a few days, not, not even maybe even 5,000 days. It may take more than 5,000 days to evaluate the worth and the benefits and the harms of a new technology. So social media, so the kind of brouhaha and the outrage over social media right now to me feels completely unwarranted. Um, because it's too early in figuring out what they're good for. We should, we should not that, I mean, if, if they're causing harm, okay. There was a mistake. It was not useful. Let's try something different. It's not a social moral failing. The lesson of Silicon Valley is that you don't make failure into a moral issue. Failure is how you learn. Failure is the necessary steps in innovation is you try stuff. You don't want to penalize failure. And right now, people are making failure into the failure of technology into a moral issue. And I think that is actually not useful. If, if I love that event that you, and that was in the eighties, correct? That you put together. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. If this is a fun question, if let's say we could, make more than one of those today. And maybe it was more than just 24 hours. If it was something with a little more uh, depth of time, what technologies 
because VR at that time was very out there and, and you allowed people to experience it before commenting, what technologies today would you want people to have a high interaction with uh, addressing a similar problem of, of, of opinion before experience? Self-driving cars. Ooh, that would be um, fun. Everybody should be riding around self-driving cars for several years before they're allowed to have an opinion about it. Self-driving uh, plane, uh, airplanes, self-driving flying cars. Uh, AI is in that same boat. Right now, any of your listeners can purchase AI on Amazon, Microsoft Azure, Google, IBM, and um, they should. Uh, they should buy some AI and fool around with it, and that will educate them more about the possibilities and the dangers, if, if any, of um, current AI. And rather than just sort of um, rely on Hollywood movies for what people think AI is. I've been spending a lot of time in the area of deep learning. And a part of that understanding of that we have in our courses is actually dissecting very common, highly used moments on web applications that we use today or mobile applications and you realize you're already interacting in favor a lot of these moments in these applications are are an ai uh, that's learning over time and i i wish there was some sort of view like a, a shadow app that could sort of dissect some of your most used applications just so you're aware of what's happening uh, behind the terminal rather than you know letting the the headlines just speak for, for what it might it might become Right, right, right. So, so yeah. So again, our, our our imaginations are working overtime, imagining all the, we're imagining mostly all the things that could go wrong with it, and um, I think that doesn't really uh, sync with what's actually going on. And not to say, you know, we all know that the future can change and things can, you know, get better or weirder. We will do better at managing our technology through use rather than through thinking about it. It's by engaging with technology we get to steer. If we prohibit or outlaw it, we don't get to steer it because it's going to happen anyway. Yeah. And so um, so I, I, I engage, I mean, I advocate high engagement with technologies. And that's sort of coming back to your original question. We've drifted here. Um, so that, that, that engagement is the way that I try to learn and unlearn about them is by as much as possible engaging with them through use. So, you know, my larger umbrella of study, Kevin, is I had a friend tell me I should start pitching it as an antidote uh, to, to burnout. So it's less about time off because some of the times that doesn't just mean you're relaxing, you know, on a beach in a hammock, it, it sometimes is very active. It's like rest for some people can be active. It's more about the time off from like the day-to-day -day grind. What does unplugging look like and time off look like for you to, to tap away from your usual work? Yeah. So I, I'm a big believer in slack and sabbaticals and taking breaks. And um, when I travel, I'm, not a very mobile person to begin with, but I'm even less so. I, I don't have any social media on my phone and 
Very few people know my cell number. Um, one of the reasons why I'm old school uh, email is that I can control it. It, it, it it's not, it's asynchronous. It's, um, um, it's a way for me to walk away for several days or more and, um, uh, you know, un, unhook in, in that way. Um, and so I do that on a regular basis when I travel. I often am traveling in places still today that are fairly remote and have uneven connectivity. I was just in Siberia. We had, you know, at times no connection. Places like Mongolia were, again, out beyond the, the circle of connection. For those times, I, I do that deliberately where I don't try too hard to get connected. I mean, and, and that, that time off is totally rejuvenating and interesting in other ways. I really am a big advocate of the kind of emerging idea of kind of project-based work or the, the rhythm of project base where you have a project and you might work very intensely and maybe even kind of like overtime blitzing where you are just crunching for uh, a deadline and then and then you take you know you do something different you you not necessarily go to the beach you may be a staycation you may be working for me it's working on my workshop doing something there with my hands or uh just shifting, just just doing something different, maybe not at the same speed or intensity. And then, so so you, for me, it's a series of different kinds and different sequences. And it's like anything else, it's that variation, and I think that gives a richness to your life. And it's the same thing about your diet. For me, it's not like not eating certain things or whatever. It's just making sure you have a variety of stuff with some junk food here and you've got some nice healthy foods there and there's just you know there's a variety and so the variety is for me more important and the and the, and the rhythms rather than you know uh this or this or a prohibition of that or that the variety aspect fascinated just took notes there on a new category of my ongoing study based on the machine accelerated future that that we're seeing do you think humans, um, and I, I bring this up because I'm noticing a lot of the, the deep learning applications today are obviously in other machine learning instances are taking over these narrow use cases that typically for humans are very mundane and error prone. Um, but as that accelerates and machines are handling more and more, do you think that's going to allow humans to have more or less time off or the word you said, you know, diversity, a variety. I, I, absolutely. I, I, I'm totally gung ho on AI for that reason. And, um, for my, in my vocabulary, in my framework, um, any, any task where efficiency or productivity matters is a task that we're going to give to the bots. And, um, they are made to live on, to, to be efficient and productive. And so productivity is for, for bots. And so we, we will, we humans, we're going to go through our lives and hopefully identify anywhere where, there's, where efficiency or productivity matters and hand that over to, to the bots, relieving us of that and 
um, we would then get to do something that's inefficient and not about productivity. Or you, you could look at it as saying, well, we will partner with them and they will do the productive chores. And as, as a team, we will accomplish because what our role in that partnership is is in places where uncertainty reigns because the machines i think for a long while are not going to be as comfortable with a certain uncertainty as we are and so if you want to if you want to answer you ask a machine if you want to question you hire a human and i think what we're doing is uh what we can do as humans is all the things that we love to do which is like um, explore uh, discover uh, create art uh, hang out and small talk and have human experiences and not one of those things is is efficient they're they're all highly inefficient they are they waste time and you have dead ends when you're exploring and you've got uh, failures when you do science and you you know you, you you create useless stuff when you're making art and so we hopefully will be liberated by the the ais to pursue more of that kind of work and then when we invent some new desire and decide to satisfy it with things that we've made uh in the beginning we don't know what we're doing there's a lot of uncertainty and we'll just try stuff and it's not very efficient but over time that brand new thing will begin to acquire habits and it will begin to we'll begin to see what's repetitious and that there's a lot of it that's can be if efficient and product uh, and productive and as we do that we will give that new chore to the bots again relieving us of that so we can go out and find something new and undiscover and full of friction and full of inefficiencies and so in a certain grand scheme uh, our jobs as humans to find jobs to give to the robots beautifully said kevin and i'm i, I share the same optimistic view. I like how your discussion of, look, we need time to go by, a lot of time to go by to really understand what these technologies are and to allow them to thrive into something that enhances us uh, as a species. And you're involved with an organization called Long Now. Am I correct with that? Correct. There's one particular project that, uh, given the name of my study, Time Off, one of the words is time, I'm fascinated by the 10,000-year clock project and i guess the short question i would ask and you can take the time to answer however you'd like why does the construction of it appeal to you for the benefit of the listeners the clock of the loan now the 10,000 year clock is a real clock it's a it's a very large clock um that is being built inside a mountain in west Texas and it's in being built inside a vertical tunnel about 500 feet tall the clock is hanging in that huge vertical tunnel um, and a lot of the clock is actually um, chimes um, that will be rung uh, once a day for the next 10,000 years and each time they're rung they play a different melody whether anybody's there or not. And the clock is powered to, self-powered, to, to run off the differences between the day and night at the top of the mountain. 
uh, and it's corrected and synchronized with a, a lens at the top. Um, so the clock is keeping time by itself, um, whether or not humans are around in theory for 10,000 years, yet uh, the, the clock only displays the time uh, of the last time it was asked. So, so it doesn't have to be wound to keep time, but um, visitors have to wind it to update the display of the current time, because that takes a lot of energy. So they, there's a turnstile that takes three people to turn and you turn it and you're moving and you're basically updating the display of the correct time. So there's some human involvement just to see the time. So the purpose of all this clock, which is in this mountain in West Texas, and it looks like the clock has always been here. It's this really beautiful ancient thing that's sort of been inside of mountains, kind of like, you know, like the Lord of the Rings. It feels like the clock has always been inside the mountain. And, and um, the purpose of this clock is to encourage us as a species, as a human, as a civilization, to think about long-term things, to think about making things in civilization scales, just thinking about starting something that may take more than your own lifetime to finish. It's about taking the long view on things and thinking about future generations, because this clock is thinking, it's going to, into a future generation. So this is kind of a reminder that it is possible and responsible maybe, and certainly maybe cool to think about long-term things that take more than a quarter to make, it takes maybe longer than five years to make, it takes maybe longer than your own lifetime to make. That, you know, we, we are, we right now are the recipients of people who made something long before we were born and we're still enjoying the roads and the the plumbing and the other things that previous generations have built. And we should also be investing into things that may take, that may last many generations. And that's what the clock is meant to do. Well, as someone who grew up obsessing over the cosmos, <laughs> the many, the many Carl Sagan statements around. Yes, you know this 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 amazing little short history that we have, and the, you know the gifts that have been given from generation to generation. From that part of me, I have a huge smile on my face, and also as a native Texan, I'm just happy to know that this beautiful clock <laughs> yeah. is in is in the desert in West Texas, which is one of my favorite favorite areas. Yeah, it's it's sort of uh, near Lubbock, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, wow. so there's not much there, and and you know right now it's privately owned. Jeff Bezos owns the clock; he's the one who's financing it, and he has promised that um, it will be opened to people to visit it in some capacity in, mm. in the future when it's done. It's not done yet, yeah. um, and 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 that that pilgrimage will be quite an arduous thing because it's in the middle of nowhere. You have to hike in. You may, you may have to stay overnight near the clock um, and then hike back because it, there's there's no real roads to the base of it. So um, the, the, the idea is to make a real pilgrimage out of it, to make it an epic, mythical wow. visit. 
of visiting this eternal clock that's ticking wow. and, and, and making a different melody, whether anybody's there or not to hear it. It's one of many, hopefully, clocks. So there is a prototype clock that's ticking in the London Science Museum. This was the clock that we, Danny Hill has designed and constructed before the year 2000. So on the midnight of the eve of 2000, year 2000, you know, it, the little cuckoo came out, which will come out once every millennial. <laughs> and um, uh, we, we hope that there will be other clocks built maybe in other cities, Singapore, Washington, DC, wherever, that um, would also serve the same purpose. So it, it, it's, we hope that this is one of many clocks being built into the future. So wrapping this up, Kevin, we've, we've discussed a number of amazing topics that align with my area of study, you know, diversity, uh, sabbaticals, unlearning, embrace being lost, embrace playfulness. But for the, the listeners that are feeling burned out or find themselves being addicted to, to work and staying at the office at a, a high frequency, staying there late at a high frequency, uh, and, and, and they're craving unplugging and they're craving some rest. Do you just have some simple last pieces of advice for that yeah, person? I do. Go do a couple of funerals. And what you'll learn from the funerals as people are giving the eulogy for whoever it was is that they almost never talk about what that person accomplished. What you'll hear people talking about is what kind of person they were as they you know made their accomplishments and so in the final analysis the kind of legacy that you're going to leave is not on how much money you made and not even how many books you wrote or apps you created you're going to be your legacy is really what kind of person you were while you were doing them and the kind of relationships that you had and the balance of goodness that you introduced that's really what your legacy will be no matter you know how you're keeping score that's how we're going to keep score and keep that in mind when you're working hard wow kevin i can't i can't thank you enough for this and that is such a beautiful statement there at the end and uh, i needed to hear it thank you you're welcome i'm glad that we had a chance to chat thanks for your great questions yeah. i wish you the great success thank you and, thank uh, you hopefully your definition of success will be your own mm. wonderful kevin a wonderful restful rest of the week to you thanks again. okay thanks great yeah, Bye-bye. I hope that Kevin's last point has stuck with you a bit, like it stuck with me. And I'd like for you to actually take a moment and visualize your funeral. I mean, really think about it. Who's going to be there? And what's their lasting memories of you? And at the funeral reception, what is everyone going to be thinking and talking about? Will there be regret or will there be celebration? Will you be remembered as a cranky old person or someone who never let go of their youth? 
And who might not prioritize attending because you didn't prioritize more quality moments with them? I actually thought about this for myself, and of all things, I thought about my email inbox when I considered my funeral. And I realized that most of the people who email me probably won't be at my funeral. So I can actually learn to relax more when I don't have a perfect inbox zero. I don't need to treat every email like an emergency. And I can balance out my email inbox discipline by closing my web browser and going and having a special moment with the people and hobbies I enjoy. That is the best investment in the quality of my funeral. I want to say thank you for listening. And I want to end by wishing you all a legendary funeral. (laughs) And I hope you find a little more rest this coming week. Thank you.